Oh, Father, we declare again that you reign above and below, that your reign stretches as far as the eye can see, and we worship you, we love you, we love to see you high and lifted up. Father, we thank you that you receive and welcome our praises, that our worship is welcome in your courts. We thank you that you have made that possible by sending Jesus. And so we worship you this evening. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you to our all-girl band. We had a bit of a mad scramble at about half past six because we got a message. Half past five, eh? We got a message that said it was going to be load shedding at six. So load shedding is still happening, but the city of Cape Town is bailing Eskom out, so to speak. So um, we are spared load shedding until 10. 10, eh, Stephen? <laughs> so load shedding will kick in for us after 10 o'clock. I don't think it will go off tonight, but definitely from tomorrow we'll experience load shedding again. So we set up on the stage, and then we heard powers going off, and then we came down here, <laughs> and then we heard it was going back on again, and then we, we, had to re, we had to reset. It was quite a bit of a scramble. So we're going to continue this evening on our... Um, in our series, and last week we had a look at the 2,000-year history of the church and how it grew from a very small group of believers in Jerusalem, about 120 of them, to, to being a, a faith that has about 2.3 billion people who profess to be followers of Jesus today. And learning about our history as believers, learning about our heritage helps us to understand not only how we came to be who we are, but it also gives us a clearer picture of what our identity is as the church. So that when we are presented with an alternative idea by secular society about who they think we ought to be, we actually will know who we are. It's also helpful as many of the decisions that the church at large is making today is actually based on knowledge of what has happened in the past. And I think sometimes we forget this. So this evening we'll take another step in discovering more about who we are as the body of Christ. Now when we get together on a Sunday evening like this, there's a list of things that we always do, and sometimes it follows a very particular order. And we usually have someone, MC, like Mike did this evening. MC will come up, he'll, he'll welcome everybody, he'll open in prayer. And, and then we have a time of, of singing worship songs as we've just had. And then we might spend some time in prayer, and then you'd listen to somebody like me, um, hopefully not bore you to death with a sermon, and then that would also include some reading of Scripture. Now, have you ever thought to yourself, why do we do things in that particular order, and why are those things that we do on the list? Have you ever thought about that? 
Why do we do those particular things when we come together on a Sunday? Now, while this order of service, while we do these things together, helps us kind of inform our planning, so it kind of helps the worship team to know what they're going to sing. It helps Mike to know um, what he's going to have to say when he comes and he, and he needs to MC. It helps me to understand what our service is going to look like. While it helps all of, all of those kinds of things, there's actually something more at work in having those particular things that we do when we come together on a Sunday. And the way in which we order our time of worship on a Sunday evening is actually also based on a very ancient practice that is made up of what we could call sacred elements. And those sacred elements include prayer, it includes fellowship, it includes teaching, the reading of scripture, communion, we'll have communion regularly, and then there's also the offering or sharing amongst one another. Now, our gatherings will always have those elements in them. And the same will go for the Explore congregation who meets on a Sunday morning, and the same will go for the classic congregation that meets here, as well as what you'll find in other evangelical churches. They'll do the same kind of thing. And we have those elements because it's what the early church did. And so we learn that and we take it from them. This is what Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 said about the early church gatherings. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to pray. So what we do is actually patterned after that. That's why we do those kinds of things. Now, if we read the description of the, of the newborn church as it is portrayed in the book of Acts, and we find some things very different from modern ideas of church, like what we do here when we come together. In fact, many of the things that we might mention today in describing church was, wasn't even present or actually looked anything like it in the early church so we know there were no church buildings. They didn't have any special uniforms like some um, reverends would like to dress up like Batman. Also, there was, there was no New Testament. They were still living the New Testament back then. They even didn't have copies of the Bible as we have today. They only had certain Old Testament writings that they would read and so it was very different for the early church in that sense. Now, when you think about this, this kind of raises a question in your mind. Is it possible that we as the modern church have kind of gone off course? And if so, does that mean that we now have to go back to the Bible and do everything exactly as the disciples did between 30 and 60 A.D.? Now, there are some things that raise questions generally, but I don't think so. Now, I know that lately there's been this big move by some believers to go back to this house church model, because the early church met in people's houses. 
saying that it's, it's the way of the future because it's the only authentic reproduction of the past. There's this move to go back to that. And some of that idea has value. However, social and cultural shifts that have happened over the last 2,000 years since then have actually made it possible to imitate some of the lifestyle and religious efforts of the early church. But there are some differences. For example, as we know, we use cell phones. We use tech. We drive in cars. We fly in aeroplanes. And our societies are actually structured very differently to the time that the early church actually gathered. Now, all of these advances have made it possible for us to do things differently. And in some cases, what we are able to do differently actually in, is better than the way that the early church actually did it. And so the, we are able to do some things different while staying true to the message of the gospel and what we have been called to do. And then also we must remember that there is no such thing if we are thinking of making everything going back to the way that the early church did it. There is no such thing as a perfect church community. And the same is true of the early church. Many of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to churches were to address problems that they were having. For example, the church in Corinth, they had issues with sexual immorality and they were having issues with incest within families. So a guy was having uh, relations with his mother-in-law. And then also in the Corinthian church, there was disunity amongst them and they were taking each other to court. And then they also had disorganized worship gatherings. And then in the Galatian church, they actually had abandoned the message of the gospel. In the church in Thessalonica, they had lost hope of the new heavens and new earth, and they actually were at a point where they doubted eternal life. And then the Ephesian church had issues with unity as well. So there isn't some pristine, uncorrupted, untainted early church that we must aspire to be like. But we must learn from them, though. Now, since the time of the early church, God has been and continues to be at work sanctifying us, making us more and more holy as we follow him. This is what 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18 says about that. It says, and we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree, degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now I'd like us for the next few minutes just to spend some time looking at an aspect of the early church and the early church life that is presented to us in the book of Acts. We'll go on that little verse that we read earlier. Now, 
these verses that we're going to look at summarize the daily life of the earliest Christian community in Jerusalem. And the passage that we're going to read is fairly easy to understand, but I think the challenge comes in discerning how to apply that to our lives today. This is what it says, the five verses from Acts chapter 2. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to pray. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now what we read here follows directly after the story of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit had been experienced powerfully, not only by those who were present in that upper room, but also by uh, people who were gathered outside in, in the city of Jerusalem, in the neighborhood. And then Peter had given his first Christian evangelistic sermon to these people, explaining what the people were experiencing when the Holy Spirit came down upon them. And the response to, the, to Peter's sermon was tremendous in that 3,000 people um, who were there, they repented, they were baptized, and they joined the Jerusalem Christian community. Kind of looks like the first mega church there. And this, this passage describes what the life of the resulting community looked like. But out of that, I want us just to focus on one principle, one thing that gets mentioned there. So this passage that we read through now um, mentions teaching, it mentions fellowship, it mentions breaking of bread, it mentions praise. It also says that they were together and they had all things in common, and they basically looked after one another. Now, what we see here in these few verses, I think, is the New Testament demonstration of the Old Testament declaration when God said that it is not good that man should be alone. So I would like us to direct our focus on the principle of fellowship for the next few minutes. Now, you cannot thrive. You cannot continue to grow or to do well as a Christian without fellowship, without this kind of thing. In fact, I don't think that you could survive as a believer without fellowship. Now, what we see here in these few verses is the demonstration of the truth that God designed us to live our lives together. We are designed that way. It is inherent within us. Now, in the original Greek, what those words that we read now were first written in Greek, and then it was translated into other languages. Now, if we go back to the, the way it was first written, 
the word that was used there for fellowship is the word koinonia. Now, this word koinonia appears in the New Testament about 20 times, and this word, when it's translated, has different meanings depending on the context in which it is used. And so, this word koinonia could mean communion, it could mean contribution, it could mean sharing, it could mean partnership. So, the word has different meanings within it. Now, if you put all of those ideas, all of those different meanings of this word koinonia together, I think we discover that fellowship is being described here as sharing the life of Jesus together as a community. It's not just a social gathering. It's a spiritual gathering. But what we are doing is we are being social over spiritual matters when we come together. Now, the apostles' doctrine, the way they described it, describes their fellowship. It describes this gathering of people coming together. And they together, when we, as we read there, they listened to an apostle teach preaching. And that was a shared endeavor. It was something that they all did together. Also, the breaking of bread that gets spoken about there, that was done as part of the fellowship. That's where they got together and they had a meal and they ate food together. And then afterwards, they took the Lord's Supper together, known as the Love Feast, or some people would call it an Agape Feast. That was shared, something that was done together. And then finally they would pray, and that was also something that they would do together. They prayed for one another. And then verse 44 there, I think, is what we could call the summary description. It says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. When we gather together like this, we have a goal. We don't just come together because we feel like it. We don't just come together on a Sunday because we've got nothing better to do. We don't come together because it's something that our families have been doing for yonks, and so we just continue to do it. There's something more to all of this. Our goal is to stimulate each other to spiritual growth. All the things that we do when we get together actually builds us up over time. It's kind of like food. You know, today is the 16th of May. Yes. Now, I cannot remember what I had for supper on the 16th of May last year. In fact, I can't remember what I had for lunch last week. But you know what? I do know that what I ate nourished and sustained me from then until now. And so the stuff that we do together with one another is actually very important. It's like food for you. And when you are eating this food, when we are praying together, when you are fellowshipping with each other, when we are singing, 
all of those things are actually adding to you and to your spiritual formation. The fellowship, the teaching, the reading of Scripture, the communion, the sharing, and the offering. Something happens within us spiritually when we do those things together and we stimulate each other to spiritual growth. Now, another demonstration of the value of fellowship is in a little phrase that appears throughout the New Testament. I think it appears about 60 times. And the phrase is one another. For instance, we see it in Romans 13, love one another. Romans 14, edify one another. Romans 15, admonish one another. Ephesians 4, be kind to one another. You cannot do one another with just a computer, maybe, or with a cell phone. You cannot do that through that means. It'll come close. It'll be a good copy of it, but it's not the same. And this is actually one of the challenges that we face now during this time of COVID. You know, you have to have a human being to have a one another experience with. And that's part of this idea of fellowship. And so we discover very quickly that the New Testament church was intensely relational. Intensely relational. They lived their lives together. And I believe that this is something that we in the modern church can learn from the early church and value in the way that they valued. Fellowship, unity, togetherness is actually a cornerstone of our faith. As I'm coming to a close now, you know, on the last night of Jesus' life, he prayed a prayer that stands as what we could call a lighthouse for us when we think about this idea of fellowship. And this is the prayer that Jesus prayed. We find it in John chapter 20. Jesus prayed these words on the night before he was crucified. He said, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Those are precious words that Jesus prayed to the Father on our behalf. And Jesus, knowing that the end was near, he prayed this one final prayer for us. And it's striking to me that he prayed not for our success. He didn't pray that we would be successful. He didn't pray for our safety. 
He didn't even pray for our happiness. He prayed for our oneness. He prayed for our unity. He prayed that we would love each other. And in that love for one another, that we would experience this fellowship with one another. In his last prayer, Jesus prayed that you and I would pursue fellowship together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you call us, that you draw us into your body. We thank you that as you draw us as individual people, you place us in a body. We thank you that even as we come together, that you are here in the midst. Even when two or three are gathered together, you are here with us. Father, come and grow this desire to be together, to experience this fellowship that your body is made up of. Come and grow us spiritually. Come and continue to form us more and more in the image of Christ. And Lord, we thank you for this time that we could come together. We know that there are many believers across the world, even now in Israel, who are unable to come together like this, and we thank you that we can. But we remember them as well. And we ask you that you would continue to be with them, that they would not lose that idea of this oneness that is within your body. Be with us now as we leave from here, as we enter into another week. Continue to be with us. Bless us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.